Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Over the past several weeks, as you probably know, we've been talking about tremors in our society, these areas where there are mounting tensions and divisions and fractures of various kinds. And today we're looking at the arena of wealth and poverty. Sounds like a real blast, I know. Like many of the issues in this series, the title alone might trigger within us a whole set of arguments in defense of our pre-existing perspective on this topic. Money and wealth and poverty is one of those up-in-our-business topics. So we kind of recoil sometimes and protect ourselves by starting to rattle off reasons for our current attitude and approach, and this rationale and these reasons may already be running through our minds and starting to flow as we think about wealth and poverty. I hope we resist this temptation today as best we can, because it is not possible to be a growing Christ follower and shut the door every time something comes up that disturbs what we already think or already believe. The rich and the poor have always been with us, always been among us, so maybe this isn't a new tremor, but in recent years, like most things, frankly, the tension has been rising. And when the subject of rich and poor and wealth and poverty comes up in the cultural conversation these days, as you well know, it's not just a financial concern. It has a long train of political implications to it, social implications, Racial issues may be in play, maybe gender issues as well. Our whole system of capitalism is sometimes dragged into this conversation. There's no shortage of opinion on what perspective on these things is the right perspective. There's no shortage of experts on Twitter or our favorite news program or YouTube spouting off their particular theory on these things, and on and on and on and on this mess goes. Today is obviously not the forum to pick through all of those details and opinions and select one we think is the best. Today is about navigating this tension as a Christ follower. That's really stating the obvious, but I want to state the obvious again. Today is about navigating this tension as a Christ follower. For those seeking first the kingdom of God, we simply can't let our favorite cultural icon be the primary shaper of our perspective on wealth and poverty. Or maybe say it this way, we can't claim to seek first the kingdom of God and then look everywhere but the kingdom of God for wisdom to navigate the tremor around wealth and poverty. So I want to invite us to come to the task at hand today as those who, above else, desire God's perspective on money and wealth and poverty. And that perspective might be different than the one we currently have. It might be different than the one our favorite news program promotes. It might be different than the one our particular, particular cultural, cultural icon teaches. Now, I'm not suggesting that my words are inerrant or in any way fully capture the whole of God's story on this topic. What I am saying is that the Bible is actually pretty clear and direct on the challenges of wealth for the follower of Jesus and on the responsibility of God's people to care for the poor. 
There's not much ambiguity when it comes to those two things. It's difficult, according to the Bible, to be wealthy and to be a Christ follower. And it's the responsibility of those who are Christ followers to care for the poor. So I hope we let the scripture speak to us and when appropriate, welcome its disruption. Paul wrote to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world. And then he lists a few of the commands. Earlier in the book, he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes a sharp distinction between storing up treasures on earth and storing up treasures in heaven. He calls money in this section a master, a lord, and he says you can't serve both God and money. And we could go on and on because the Bible goes on and on about the relevance and the importance of money and wealth in the life of a follower of Jesus. And I realize up front, wealth is a touchy subject in a wealthy suburban setting such as ours. And wealth is a touchy subject because it feeds the narrative that churches talk about money too much. And I'll tell you, I feel the angst of talking about all this today. I've talked about money and wealth and all these things, I don't know how many times, from this very stage over the years. And it's always angsty, if that's a word. It's always a bit awkward. And I always find myself over-apologizing. But we just can't ignore the overwhelming amount of ink in the Bible regarding money and riches and wealth and poverty. It is, without any doubt, one of the most talked about topics in the entire scriptures. And we just have to realize that many of us, sitting here or watching at home, many of us are rich and wealthy compared to the vast majority of the world. Not all of us, but many of us, maybe most of us, are relatively wealthy when compared to most of the world. So in terms of the Bible's teaching, we are the rich ones. We are the wealthy. Some years ago, I was walking through the slums of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I was stunned by the degree of poverty and despair. I'm not exaggerating here. My garage, messy as it is, is nicer than most of the living spaces I visited. And here's the thing. There are far more people in the world who live like they do in Sao Paulo than like I do here in Folsom. See, I am wealthy and I am rich compared to the majority of the world. Mike and Julie are wealthy and rich compared to the majority in the world. I am privileged. I have had more unearned advantages than most people in the world. So when I read verses that say, command those who are rich, that is speaking to me. That's talking to me. I'm not able to go, well, I'm not rich compared to, so I drop that over here. No, I'm rich compared to the majority in the world. So I need to keep my financial life and resources out before God so that his perspective and the way of his kingdom is the primary shaper of my perspective 
and action in this area. What I do with my money, how I spend it, how I share it with others, my degree of generosity, how I view my home, my time, the other resources I have, what I do with these things, my generosity with these things. All of this is 100% kingdom stuff. A word on poverty. God did not intend the world to be a place of economic disparity. Poverty, in other words, is not part of God's original plan. I know this sounds really obvious. Maybe it does. For some reason, it feels like something that I need to camp on for just a second. Poverty is not part of God's original plan. When God created the world and put humans in it, he did not intend for there to be categories of rich over here and poor over here. God's desire was, is, and always has been shalom. This beautiful Hebrew word that means something like universal flourishing for all people. Wholeness and completeness for all people. Abundance for all people. This is how God intended the world to be. Smart guy named Cornelius Plantiga writes this. The story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God has joined together and joins together what God has put asunder. Like some devastating twister, corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back toward the formless void from which it came. Translation. In Genesis 3, when humans disobeyed God, Plantiga says, Shalom was vandalized. It's a good phrase to keep in mind. Shalom was vandalized. And there are all kinds of signs of vandalized shalom in our world. And one such sign is the disparity between the wealthy and the poor. Poverty is not what God intended. It is the result of the curse that followed human sin. In the world God envisioned and will one day bring about, there is no poverty. No one is hungry. No one lacks In the world God envisioned and will one day bring about, scarcity is replaced with abundance for all. These things are crucial issues for kingdom people. The reality is, however, wealth is risky to our souls. I have a confession to make. I prefer an expensive piece of halibut fish doused in a delicious Cabernet sauce perched on top of a plush bed of risotto to a Big Mac and fries. I like nice hotel rooms with plenty of space and with one of those turndown services where they roll the sheets back and put a little chocolate thing on the pillow to a cramped hotel space that smells like my high school locker room. So I like nice things. I prefer nice things. Also, some of the most generous and most kingdom-oriented people I know are extremely wealthy. This has been true for as long as I have been alive. Some of the most generous and most kingdom-oriented people I know are the most wealthy. They're extremely wealthy. Yet they give lavishly. They serve with no strings attached. They have hearts that reflect the love and beauty of Jesus, their wealth has not ruined them. That being said, our Bibles are clear 
Wealth is risky to the soul. One writer says, not that money is immoral or evil in itself, but the words of Jesus and the experience of Christians everywhere leave no room for doubt that money is the most powerful and destructive idol around. More often than not, it is an idol that doesn't look like an idol. So Paul writes to Timothy, his young pastor apprentice, command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those who are rich. Don't suggest, don't soften it so it's easier to digest. Command, be direct, leave no doubt as to the urgency of this issue. Paul is connecting here worldly wealth with arrogance and with where we place our hope. That's pretty serious stuff. And he is echoing a loud theme found all over the Bible. Money and wealth are 100% soul issues. Our financial lives are 100% kingdom issues. So the stakes are high. Jesus says money and wealth actually compete with God for our devotion. And just so we're clear, those who have money, it competes with them because they rest on it, they trust in it, they hope in it, as the passage says. Those who don't have wealth can be victims, can fall into the same trap by thinking that if they could only get it, all would be well. See, wealth possesses the power to possess us, so the stakes are high. So let me pose an annoying, mostly hypothetical, rhetorical, self-examination question. We won't share our answers, but just something to think about. If the sole indicator of our love and devotion to Jesus is our attitude toward and use of money, how much do we love Jesus and how devoted to him are we? Said differently, if our spending and giving were audited, would it reveal we love Jesus and are devoted to him. Hypothetical. Rhetorical. No need to share your answers out loud. Again. It's a little bit of an absurd question. But let's play along. Just a little bit longer. Just to feel the discomfort. If the sole indicator of our love and devotion to Jesus. Is our attitude toward and use of money. How much do we love Jesus? And how devoted to him are we? If our spending and giving were audited, would it reveal we love Jesus and are devoted to him? The first command to the rich in our passage is don't be arrogant. I find that fascinating. I find that precise. I find that to possess the Bible's unique ability to kind of go right down into what might be the heart of the matter. Money and resources and wealth can, at times, foster a sense of superiority over those who are less fortunate. Sometimes this arrogance Paul is talking about appears in an attitude that goes something like this. We might think this. It kind of might be our DNA, our disposition. It goes something like this. Well, the poor kind of deserve their poverty. They're lazy. They don't want to work. So poverty is their choice. I went to school. I got a degree. I work hard. I don't do drugs. I don't commit crimes. Some version of this attitude fuels the tension between wealthy, the wealthy and the poor, 
But we will have a tough time finding support for this attitude in the pages of our Bible. This is not the attitude of a Christ follower. Arrogance also permeates the attitude such as this. You know, I pay taxes to care for the poor, so it's the government's job. Why aren't they doing it? I've heard Christians ask this question, and I've been waiting for the, I'm just kidding, but the just kidding doesn't come. One of the hot-button issues these days is the growing homeless population, San Francisco, parts of Sacramento. I have no clue how to solve this issue. I would be just sharing my foolishness to even make a suggestion. I will say this. I don't like seeing scores of people living in tents on the side of the road. But I do know something with almost certainty. There is no way a Christ follower can biblically rationalize their dismissiveness or lack of care for people who sleep in the streets or in the woods. There's just no way to rationalize it. A Christ follower must, by definition, have an attitude that has been shaped by Christ, period. Our attitude and how we respond to the poor and forgotten and marginalized and homeless says everything about our connection to Jesus. The second command is don't put your hope in wealth because it is uncertain. It can vanish quickly as we obviously have learned. It can't satisfy our ultimate desire and it will seduce us into thinking this life is the one that ultimately matters and yet the Bible constantly points to the life that is truly life using Paul's phrase in this passage that is a life with God now and a life with God forever as being the ultimate life. So don't trust paychecks or home equity or 401k balances. They matter. They have their place. But these things have a power in them to compete for first place in our hearts and in our lives. There is always the risk that they matter too much. And when they matter too much, they steal our devotion and we misplace our confidence. So how do we combat the risks of wealth? And that brings me to this idea that poverty is our business. Jesus coming to earth is the supreme example of one with power taking the initiative to reach out and love those without power. The incarnation, then, is the ultimate power move. Jesus modeled this in his coming and throughout his time on earth, always reaching out toward those everyone else deemed forgettable. Women, lepers, the blind, the sinner, on and on it could go. This is the way of the kingdom. Power moves toward those who don't have power. The strong move toward the weak. The ones on the inside move toward those on the outside. Never to fix, never to control, never to save, but to show love with open hands. So the wealthy are to take the initiative to love and serve the poor. Not to fix, not to control, not to save, but to show God's love with open hands. So poverty is the business of those who seek first God's kingdom. And this is splashed all over the Bible without ambiguity. 
There is no debate on this. Poverty is the business of those who seek first the kingdom. A few examples. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward the poor. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Be generous to the poor. On and on it goes. There's hardly a subject more popular in the Bible than the plight of the poor and the responsibility of the people of God to do something about it. So our heart and our compassion for the poor is very much an indicator of whom we love and follow. How we think about the poor indicates who our teacher really is. As I said earlier, poverty is a sign of vandalized shalom. A sign that this world is under a curse and it is not operating as God intended. And our work as Christ followers and our work as his church is the work of restoring shalom and demonstrating shalom. So the wealthy have a shalom responsibility to the poor. Our passage tells us how to fulfill this responsibility. Command the rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous. Key word and willing to share. Here's the beauty of God's story and plan. The world is broken. The world is under a curse right now today. So there are those who have and have not. It's not the way God intended things to be, but it is the way things are. And God's design is for those who have to care for and to help those who have not. It's called shalom in action using our resources to do large amounts of good, ridiculous generosity to restore shalom and bring forth good in this broken world. Not fix, not solve, not save, but serve. So, last week, refugees from Ukraine. We have other ministries reaching out to refugees from Afghanistan. People being affected, cared for, loved, by other people. This is exactly the kind of frontline shalom restoration work where Christ followers belong and where the church belongs. When Jesus rose from the dead, I don't know if we recognize this, but it was the beginning of a new era in God's kingdom story. Real life in this real world changed the minute Jesus walked out of his grave. And the power of the curse over this world was eclipsed by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what changed. The power of darkness, the power of the curse, was suddenly outmatched by the power of God exerted in the resurrection. So the power of the curse is no longer the greatest power. Resurrection power is now unleashed to transform the world and start to restore shalom. And this power works in part through the good deeds and generosity of God's people. So instead of death, life. Instead of greed, sacrificial giving. Instead of my wealth for my comfortable life and retirement, my stewardship for God's glory. See, we have the opportunity to use our resources in partnership with God to bring forth his purposes on earth and restore shalom. That sounds like quite the privilege. And it sounds like a whole bunch of fun when you do it with other people. And this is the calling on the people of God. It's called stewardship. God has entrusted some of his resources to me. And my job is to use those resources 
to help bring forth his kingdom purposes and do my part to restore shalom. So the way to combat the risks of wealth is to be, Paul's words, rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. Sacrificial generosity to support the work God is doing in the world. Giving away our time. Giving away our talents. Giving away our resources. To restore shalom bit by bit. Now some of you are thinking this is the moment. He's going to do it right now. Now he's going to tell us about the offerings of the church. And to give to them. No, I'm not. I'm going to move on to the last point. The last point is this. It's a vision. A church where the wealthy and the poor need each other and worship together is a sign of God's new world. A church where the wealthy and the poor need each other and worship together is a sign of God's new world. There's a growing impulse. It's happening all around the Christian community to connect and gather with others who are like us in one way or another. It's an old impulse, really. It's been around forever. But this impulse is rising to gather, to be with those who are like me. So people want to be part of a church with other people that are like them in some way. They vote like them. So let's be in church together. They believe the same things as them. So those are the ones I want to be in church with. They feel the same way about church. So those are the ones I want to hang around with. They don't like this and I don't like this. So I want to be with them. They like this and I like this. So I want to be with them. Let me say this as clearly as I can. I have zero interest in Oak Hills being a church filled with likes. I want Oak Hills to be a church of unlikes. And as it relates to today's topic, I want Oak Hills to be a church where the wealthy and the poor need each other and worship together. Underscore need each other. Because the rich and the poor coming together and being together and having mutually edifying relationships restores shalom. It joins back together what the curse has torn apart. And when unlikes find common ground in Jesus, the unity of the unexpected community proclaims the gospel to a broken world and to a world committed to fracturing further. So our local church, this thing we do, is to be a sign, a proclamation of restored shalom in this fractured world. And that happens in part when the wealthy and the poor are in relationship with each other and they're standing next to each other and they're worshiping God together and they're celebrating at this table and they're in each other's homes and they're celebrating at each other's tables and they're worshiping God together. And here's the key and I'll end with this. This is the key. And I'm going to speak in the first person because I know this to be true about me. But I also know there's a bigger principle here and it just happens to be true. But it is true about me. I 
Mike Lucan. I need the perspective and the gifts and the resources of the poor to become the man Jesus intends for me to be. I have countless examples throughout my Christian experience where I have been with those who are poor or have less than I do or whose path went this way and mine went that way and I've been with them and it's taken me all of about three seconds to believe in my guts. I need this person more than they need me. They are shaping me more than I am shaping them. It might look like I'm coming with wisdom and insight and do this and don't do that or some other resource that I can give to them, but by their very presence, they are giving to me resources I didn't know I needed until I was in their presence. I am shaped and transformed by being with the poor and letting them teach me about God and about his kingdom. Mutually edifying relationships. A church where, just in this little sliver we're considering today, a church where the wealthy and the poor come together and stand on the flat ground Jesus establishes, where we look up to him and we cry out to him, we are the gathering of those who are poor, and we desperately need you to come and be in our midst. That is a proclamation of real good news in a really fractured world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for, once again, the way in which simple, short, to-the-point words in your scripture have a way of breathing life. They pulsate with reality. With, with kingdom juice. I'm grateful that just by letting it soak over us and wash into us and crash into us, we start to see the beautiful thing you're doing in this world. We start to understand maybe just a tad bit more the way in which you are in fact restoring shalom and each one of us has a part to play in that. I pray for our church and I pray fervently for our church that we will continue to experience the power of people who are unlike each other, gathering around you, being formed into Christ-likeness, being fashioned by the unity that only you can give. And in that unity and togetherness, we proclaim the goodness of who you are and the work you're doing of restoring shalom. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.